Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And the first time I ever heard of Josephine Baker, our subject for today, I was in middle school and I was reading an old film book of my dad's that had lots of film stills in it. And there... In the middle was this almost completely naked woman who's only wearing pretty much bananas around her waist. And being a Catholic schoolgirl, I was completely scandalized and yet intrigued. And that's how a lot of people felt about Josephine Baker. And that image of her wearing the bananas around her waist is probably the most famous. But there's a lot more to Josephine Baker than just that. And besides being an extravagant, provocative stage star, she's also a French spy, a civil rights agitator, and the mother of 12 children. So obviously, we've got a lot to talk about here. As far as her early life, she was born Frida J. MacDonald, June 3rd, 1906, in St. Louis. Her family was very poor. There wasn't a dad around. And she was working by the time she was eight years old. She went on tour as a dancer at 16, moved to New York City in 1923, and while it was the Harlem Renaissance there, it was still a really tough time to be black in the United States, thought Josephine. So she went to Paris in 1925. And she joins a black American vaudeville troupe, La Revue Negre, at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées, and does the danse sauvage in feathers, which is another thing that she's pretty well known for. And this is where she found freedom in Paris. There was a marked difference between being a black woman in New York City and a black woman in Paris. Here she was, you know, this expat in jazz age Paris, Les Années Full, the crazy years after World War I, where jazz was wonderful, nudity was okay, brothels were okay, the dollar was strong, there wasn't prohibition. It sounds like a lot of fun, to be honest. So Josephine becomes a star at the Folie Bergère. This is where the G-string with bananas comes into play, which is designed by no one other than Jean Cocteau. And her dancing is passionate and intense and gathers a lot of attention. Her act involved nudity, cross-dressing, a lot of overt sexuality. And you have to ask the question of whether she was in control by manipulating her own image, or was it more subjugating herself by buying into this idea of the sexual savage Either way, she made a lot of waves. And in 1932, she performed in whiteface at the Casino de Paris in a blonde wig and skin lightener and sang a song called Si J'étais Blanche, If I Were White, which was quite the scandal. Yeah. She's so over the top, too. She's, uh, I mean, offstage as well. She's got a pet cheetah, Chiquita, who does perform with her in a diamond collar. She has a chimp named Ethel and a goat named Tutut, among many other animals. And people worship her. Crowds follow her around. People clamor for her autograph. She's offered flowers and presents and dinners. So she's this huge celebrity in, in glamorous Paris. Uh, Picasso writes that she has tall coffee skin, ebony eyes, legs of paradise, a smile to end all smiles. Supposedly, Hemingway said she was the most sensational woman anybody ever saw or ever will. So there's no hope for the rest of us, according to Hemingway. And Calder made wire sculptures of her. So she started getting into other things besides just being this stage dancer. She collaborated on biographies of herself. She wrote a novella in 1931, and she began singing professionally in 1930 
and appearing in silent films in 1934. You can find clips of some of them on YouTube if you look. And by 1937, she makes an important decision to become an official French citizen. This is sort of renouncing her her American past and the the troubles she faced when she lived in America. She thought the U.S. was very racist, and she made a lot of comments about this throughout the rest of her life. But during World War II, she was banned by the Vichy government from performing, and she started working with the Red Cross and also the French Resistance, which is so cool. She was a spy, and no one thought she would be a spy. With someone like Julia Child, it's, you know, she's the last person you would expect. character. Somebody who is so, um, you can't ever imagine them slipping away unnoticed. Their presence is so so huge. But that's why it's right in plain sight. She ended up getting the Croix de Guerre and the Legion of Honor with the rosette of the Résistance after the war. But during the war, she performed for troops in Africa and the Middle East, passing messages as she went along to important people and very vocally advocated integration in the army. So her post-war life is markedly different from the stuff that we've been talking about leading up to this. She buys an estate in the Dordogne, Chateau de Milande, and she starts adopting children. She adopts 12 kids beginning in 1950, and she calls them her rainbow tribe. They're boys and girls from all over the world, and I mean, we mean everywhere. And um, she goes from being a sex object to a Madonna surrounded by all of her children. It's a really interesting transformation. Which reminded us a lot of Angelina Jolie, and it's something she did very consciously. First, she cultivated this image of herself as a sex object, and then she cultivated just as hard this image of herself as a mother. She also dreamed of opening an international education institute, which she planned to call the College of Universal Brotherhood. And she basically quit the stage, but with money troubles, she ended up performing throughout the rest of her life. children. Well, (laughs) occasionally, both in the United States and in Europe. But things were tough for her in the U.S. Yeah, the nicer hotels wouldn't even receive her. So she's on top of the world in Paris, this huge star. But back in the United States, she's a black girl in Jim Crow rules. So it's it's a tough shift for her. But she is not going to take it anymore, and she made United States theaters desegregate her audiences. She regularly caused a ruckus with authorities over treatment of blacks and the lack of opportunities. And she also said that if a city's best hotel wouldn't take her, then she simply would not perform in that city. So there go your revenues. I like her here. She's this racial um, barrier breaker, but this diva performer, too. It's kind of amazing. I really love her. (laughs) There was a famous incident at the Stork Club in 1951, which, of course, was the place to be in New York. But Sherman Billingsley didn't admit blacks. Being Josephine Baker and being wildly popular, he decided he would let her in. But then none of the waiters would serve her. They claimed they were out of every single item that she offered, or at least this is according to Josephine's version of the tale. She also said that Walter Winchell, who was a very influential gossip columnist, was a witness to everything that happened and that he didn't do a darn thing to help her. And he was incensed by this portrayal. And she presses the matter, and Winchell says it's absolutely not true, but she won't let go of her version of the story. So he ends up calling her a communist and also saying she's anti-Semitic and anti-African-American. 
and also talks to the FBI about her, which resulted in a 17-year FBI investigation. Sarah said he reminded her of Perez Hilton earlier today. Yeah, kind of the the scary gossiper. (laughs) But he had a big effect on her career. He started calling her Miss Josephoni Baker in his column, and a lot of her bookings were canceled because of this rift. And she also comes to the U.S. for a lot of civil rights demonstrations. So, I mean, her uh, her experiences performing give give you a pretty good idea of why she would be invested in this. She speaks at the March in Washington in 1963, but she does have money troubles. She likes to spend. She has all these children, and um, she loses the chateau. But who comes to the rescue? Princess of Grace of Monaco, who I wish would come to my rescue on a regular basis. So we're nearing the end of her life, and in 1975, there is a Josephine retrospective in Paris. It's marking her debut there 50 years earlier, and it was hugely popular. All the celebrities are there. But during its run, she dies of a stroke, and the story is that she has this hemorrhage when she's in bed, surrounded by the newspapers, which glowing are all, reviews, exactly telling the story of just how wonderful she is, which I think she probably liked a lot. And she's buried in Monte Carlo, and twenty thousand people came to her funeral. So um, this is not not your typical story of a famous stage presence who wastes away in obscurity. She's famous to the end. But Sarah and I were talking earlier about this switch from being this sexual object to being the Madonna. And people often wonder which image was more her, because of course we have the urge to categorize and stick her in one or the other. But we have an interesting biography to talk about, which is by Jean-Claude Baker, um, who she considered her adopted son, even though he was never legally adopted. And he wrote a biography called Josephine, the Hungry Heart. In it, he said that she was sexually abused and also that she'd had an affair with a middle-aged man when she was 13. She also had several marriages that weren't entirely legal because she never ended the ones before them, and she got married when she was 13, and that she had affairs with both men and women, white and black. He also claims that she got into vaudeville through a sexual relationship with a woman, a blues singer, and we have a quote from a woman named Maude Russell who met Josephine when they were working in Philadelphia. And she said, often we girls would share a boarding house room because of the cost. Well, many of us had been kind of abused by producers, directors, leading men, if they liked girls. And the girls needed tenderness, so we had girl friendships, the famous lady lovers. But lesbians weren't well accepted in show business. They were called bull dykers. I guess we were bisexual in what you would call us today. So going back to that earlier argument, which is more her, this Madonna image or the um, crazy sexualized dancer. And it's easy enough to see how the Madonna image is partly created. You know, it's partly an image that she creates and assumes later in life. But I think by saying that doesn't necessarily mean the earlier sexualized image is Josephine Baker's true self. It could be something that has been created in part two, and then something um, that she's forced to assume. This uh, you know, affair with a middle-aged man when she's 13, these marriages when she's a teenager. It seems like some of this, um, she just, it was forced upon her almost. So let us know what you think. Email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And we'd like to end with a quote from Jean-Claude's book, trying to explain 
why people love her so much. He said, she was burning in hell from all the pain and abuse, but she was able to shut up her feelings within herself and give it back to people in a majestic and generous way. She was one of those exceptional people who know how to break down barriers to reach and touch the body, the soul of anyone. So if you want to learn more about jazz and the jazz age, you should go to our homepage, www.howstuffworks.com, and search for How Jazz Worked. You should also try following us on Twitter because we write about all kinds of interesting Josephine Baker facts and everybody we're researching. We're at Missed in History on Twitter. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 